Well, before we open up God's word this morning, would you pray with me one more time? Father, we come to you in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we are going to open your word now. And our hope and expectation is that you, God, would speak to us. That we wouldn't simply be opening a book and trying to extract principles and truths. But that here and now, we would meet with you. Or perhaps right more rightly said, you would meet with us. We thank you that you are a gracious God who seeks to fellowship with your children. And so open our eyes now, open our ears and open our hearts to your voice. Unite us here as a church to, to you and to fear your name rightly. Remove all the distractions, all the worries, all the cares and concerns that have nothing to do with you. Here and now, give us a singular focus, singular aim, a singular desire to behold our God. Satisfy us, feed us now through your word. Help us see that man should not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lead us into truth. Lead us into delight. Lead us into your love. And as I proclaim your word now, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, and that is grab hold of the hearts of men and women and shape them more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that supernatural work we ask now. And so, Father, let the words of my mouth the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Charles Spurgeon once said, quote, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our innermost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts, but it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord, end quote. A few weeks ago, as we were in our series, The DNA of a Disciple, we spent some time looking at what it means to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. And since then, the Lord's been continuously pressing upon me um, that we need to kind of circle back to this amazing truth of abiding. And we need to look 
a little more closely at how we abide in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the chief ways you and I abide in the Lord Jesus Christ is by abiding in his word. Jesus says as much in John chapter 8, verse 31. John 8, 31 reads, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. As I read that, I kept just being haunted by it because I think we would all agree to that. But what does it really mean to abide in the word of God? Why should we abide in the word of God? What does abiding in the word of God even produce in our lives? And so this morning, we're going to flesh that out a little bit more because as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he says we are to do, and he has commanded us to abide in his word. And so we're going to see that disciples of Christ abide in him by abiding in his word. Disciples of Christ abide in him by abiding in his word. And we're going to do that by looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So if you would take your copy of God's word and turn with me there. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let me read them for us. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. What Paul has just wrote in these two verses is powerful. It's dynamite. But it can easily be lost over if we don't understand exactly some theological underpinnings within here. And so before we begin unpacking those two verses in their, in their fullness, we're going to have to do a little bit of systematic theology work here. And our systematic theology is going to reside, is, is going to be birthed from that phrase, God breathed. So our first point this morning is why do we abide in the word? Which is an important question because if you think about it, if we don't answer that question well, it's, it, we're telling the world we live our entire life by a book. What makes this book any different than any other book? Why should we abide in the Bible and not abide in the Quran? Why should we abide in the Bible and not on um, the meditations by Marcus Aurelius? There's a lot of good stuff in there. Why the scriptures? Why these 66 books that make up one book? <clears throat> well, to begin with, it's because of what it says right here. It is God-breathed. Now, when we say the Bible is, is God-breathed, being that it is breathed out by God, this is the doctrine known as biblical inspiration. It's made up that word, God breathed, in the original language is the word theo 
neustos. It's two words, theos, which is God, and pneuma, which is breath. Some translations have it rendered inspired. Some have God breathed, but they're getting to the heart of the same thing, that the scriptures have their source, their origin from God himself. That's extremely important because the Bible, though it was written by men, is not the words of men. The Bible is the word of God. Men wrote it, sure, but it comes from the very mind, heart, soul, and mouth of the holy God. Now, as men wrote it, what we need to understand, they didn't go into some kind of trance and just robotically their hands start floating over papyri. No, the Holy Spirit was working in and through these men. An imperfect illustration would be kind of like a construction site. Those men are hammering and soldering and nailing and doing all of that stuff, but they're following a very specific blueprint given. So the Holy Spirit works in and through the human authors. And as he works through the human authors, he's using their intellect, their character, their vocabulary, the cultural moment they're in, their life experiences. All of that's coming to bear. That's why we see such a human element to scripture. That's why when you read Psalms, you can, you can almost feel the very heartbeat of David. When you read James, you can tell he's a no-nonsense kind of guy. When you read Paul, you can tell he loves run-on sentences. He just gets caught in that. There's a very human element. The, the biblical authors were not mindless robots, but a supernatural thing is taking place because the Holy Spirit is working in the minds and in the hearts of these men, giving special revelation, preserving their writings to be free from sin, and guiding them to the very words they use. The Bible Spanning over, some would say, 1,600 to 2,000 years, 40 different authors, three different continents, 66 books, one central theme, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a supernatural work from start to finish. And it is inspired from God. It is breathed out by God. It is the very word of God proceeding from him. Our verse this morning, all scriptures God breathed, makes that clear. But we could also look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just a book like every other book. We can rightly say the Bible that you hold in your hands is the most important possession you own. Because God is living and active through his word, he speaks. St. Augustine said, quote, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. That's why I love 
when Pastor Steve Lawson said, if you want to hear what God's voice sounds like, read the Bible out loud. Because God speaks through his word. Now, because God speaks through his word, because the word of God is inspired by God, there are some major implications that flow from this. Not only is the Bible inspired, it is inerrant. The word inerrant means without error. The Bible does not endorse anything that is not true. People say oh, the Bible has all these contradictions in it. It's funny, just ask them which ones. They seem to stumble. The Bible does not have contradictions. The Bible does not have errors in what it's stating. God has preserved it. Listen to Psalm 18, verse 30. Psalm 1830 reads, As for God, his way is blameless. The word of Yahweh is tried. It's blameless. It's tried. It's worked over. John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in your word. Your word is truth. Not that his word has true statements, but that it is truth itself. Which, again, we have to understand all of these implications of the word of God in light of God's nature. Because God is perfect, because God is free from sin, because God does not make errors, because he is perfectly wise that means the word of god likewise well likewise we free from error so we respond to this inspired inerrant word of god by believing everything that god's word teaches obeying everything that god's word commands Trusting everything that God's word promises and taking heed of all the warnings that God's word gives us. Because all of it is true. Again, if the Bible had errors, it'd be contrary to God's character because God is perfect. But because God is perfect, we know the word to be true, error-free, and trustworthy. Not only is it inerrant, it's infallible. These two words are similar. If inerrant means without error, the word infallible means that it cannot fail or err. It's never failing. It's incapable of error. Now, you go to any Christian college or seminary, and they'll try to sow seeds of doubt here. It's a foolish endeavor, and it's irreverent. Listen to the testimony of the word of God itself. Listen to Psalm 30, verse 5. I'm sorry, Proverbs 30, verse 5. Forgive me. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. It's kind of comical. God's word has been around thousands of years. 
And yet people still want to try to disprove it. Thousands of years. If it was not trustworthy, if it was with error, if it was failing, I think we would have discovered that by now. It's foolishness in man's heart that tries to do this. But after thousands of years, we see here, the word of God has been tested and proven to be true. In our call to worship, we were reading from Psalm 19. And in Psalm 19, verse 7, it said, The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. Or listen to Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of Yahweh are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the ground, refined seven times, seven being the number of completion. It's, it's been fully put in the fire and refined. God's word cannot fail, will not fail. Everything that God and his promise and his word, he will deliver on. I thought about maybe the best way to illustrate why inerrancy and infallibility are so important and why we need both. Let's give this example. There's the train. And trains, if you were to go to the city, you go online, you check the train schedule. That train schedule, that timetable of the trains is inerrant. It has no errors. However, if the train is late, it shows the schedule to be fallible. Or let's put it a different way. If I decided we were going to make a list for what we're doing today, right? A to-do list for the day. And on that list, I wrote dinner at 6 p.m. That statement just has no error in it. There's nothing, there's no error in saying dinner's at 6. But if we go and all of a sudden dinner's really at 6.15, though the statement was error-free, it was fallible. God's word doesn't just make error-free statements. It perfectly delivers on what it says every single time. God's word is inspired. It's inerrant. And it's infallible. Often the biggest critics of that are the ones who have not put it to the test. God's word is also sufficient. There's probably no other aspect of God's word right now that's under more attack than sufficiency. This could possibly be the, the fight of our, this could be our reformation cry. If during the reformation, it was scripture alone, sola scriptura, our cry could be sufficiency alone. Because we have a vast number of men and women who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, truly believe the Bible's important, they believe it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, but they question whether or not the Bible is sufficient to work and lead and guide in every area of life. God's word 
gives us everything we need, everything we need to live a life of faith and godliness. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Timothy, 2 Peter 1 3. 2 Peter 1 3, the Apostle Peter writes, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God's given you everything you need, to, you need, not simply to know him, but to follow him and to honor him. God's word has given us everything we need to be wise unto salvation. In 2 Timothy 3, if we were to go one verse before our, our text this morning, it says, Paul says to young Timothy, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Everything that you need to be saved is in the word of God. Everything you need to be a maturing disciple of Christ is in the word of God. That's verse 17 that we're going to look at later. Now, some would say, well, yeah, of course, I totally believe the Bible is totally sufficient for issues of faith. But outside of the faith, all the other life stuff, I don't think the Bible talks about that. Just a question I would have. So you're telling me you live all these other areas of your life apart from faith? Whatever is not from faith is sin. And so the word of God must guide everything we think, say, do, desire, decide on, everything. The way you buy a car should be prayerful and filtered through biblical principles. Everything in your life is a faith issue. The Bible is not simply sufficient to save your soul. The Bible is sufficient to guide your life. This is why we must abide in God's word. At the heart of abiding is sufficiency. If you do not believe that the Bible is sufficient for every aspect of your life, then you're not going to abide in the word. If you think, you know, I saw a t-shirt that said from a prominent Christian leader. And I'm going to call, I have to qualify this. T-shirt says Jesus plus therapy. Now I'm not saying that Therapy is wrong if it is God-honoring, biblically guided. I would just call that discipleship. But we seem to make this distinction that there's things I need from the world that somehow God can't provide for me. And that's a, and that's a false dichotomy. Or people say, well, all truth is God's truth. Therefore, I'm relying on this aspect of whatever. And if it's true, well, God gave it to them. Right, but they're not giving God any credit. So why not go somewhere that has the word of God doing that very same thing for you and honor God with it? We don't believe in sufficiency in America as a church. We think we need Jesus plus fill in the blank. I often have made the statement, 
that we live in a culture that tells you that if something, if, if you're emotionally struggling, something's wrong with you. Do you realize that if that's the case, we wouldn't have the book of Psalms, which is our healing balm to the soul. David, King David, believed that God was sufficient to guide him through those dark nights of the soul. And God used that, inspired him to give us the Psalms. We discredit what God can do and will do through his word. And we run to the world. And in so doing, we deny sufficiency. We trust God with our souls, but not with our lives. Not only is the word of God sufficient, it's clear. If you're into big, fancy theological words, this is called the perspicuity of scripture. It just means it's clear and understandable. It's so clear, the word of God is, that it can be properly understood and obeyed by all who, by faith, give themselves to it. That's important. The word of God can be properly understood and obeyed by everyone who, by faith, submits themselves to it. This is why in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the people are commanded the following, Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall speak of them when you sit down in your house and you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Because the scriptures are understandable and clear, they should just be all around you to guide. You don't need to go to seminary to understand the Bible. You can make the case going to seminary might confuse you on how to understand the Bible, the way things are today. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It illuminates. It makes clear. Second Peter 1.19. And we have as a more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This is what the word of God does. It is a lamp. It guides. As you hold on to the word of God, it tells you where the path is in which you should walk. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way in chapter one, paragraph seven, quote, the meanings of all the passages in the Bible are not equally obvious, nor is any individual passage equally clear to everyone. However, everything which we have to know, believe, and observe in order to be saved is so clearly presented and revealed somewhere in the Bible that the uneducated as well as the un, as well as the educated can sufficiently understand it by the proper use of the ordinary means of grace. End quote. You don't have to be a genius to understand the Bible. You just have to be humble. There are parts of the Bible that are extremely difficult to understand. But because the scriptures are clear, I want you to be encouraged that all that you need for a life of godliness, you can understand. 
God in his grace has made his word clear to us. If you and I prayerfully depend upon the Holy Spirit and are willing to humble ourselves and submit to the Bible and put in the work to study it, you can come to a true and proper understanding of God's word. We can abide in the word of God because the word of God is clear. Also, the word of God is authoritative. For disciples of Christ, for those of us who truly are followers of Jesus, the Bible is the highest and ultimate authority in our life. Or to put it in a way, the Bible has the final word in everything in your life. John 17, 17, again, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It is truth. It's the measuring stick by which all things are measured. Everything that makes truth claims must be tested against the word of God because the word of God is the standard. In 1 John 5, 9, the apostle writes, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness about his son. The witness of God, the scriptures, is greater than the witnesses of men. It is the highest authority. But so often we don't believe that. We think that scriptures are extremely... They make great suggestions. The Bible makes great recommendations, but it's not the highest authority. You expect me to really believe everything? That's 2,000 years ago. Things change. Society's different. Yada, yada, yada. Sinful excuse after sinful excuse. The Bible is the highest authority. If you do not believe the Bible is the highest authority, then you do not believe God is God. And if you have issue with the word of God, you're picking a fight with God. The Bible has to be the highest authority because the author is the highest authority. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you got a letter in the mail, from the White House telling you that you had to report at a certain date and at a certain time, you would be there. Why? Because there's authority in the letter. That letter carries the authority of the United States government. If you get a ticket and it says you must appear at court, guess what you're going to do? You're going to be at court or there's a consequence. There's authority inherent in the ticket from the government. The Bible comes from the greatest authority, God himself, and so it carries the very authority of God. Again, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter one, paragraph four. Quote, the Bible speaks authoritatively and so deserves to be believed and obeyed. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any man or church, but completely on God, its author, who is himself truth. The Bible, therefore, is to be accepted as true because it is the word of God. End quote. Because the word of God 
is authoritative. That means to disbelieve or to disobey any part of God's word is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. So the reason we abide in the Bible, which means to remain in and submit under its authority, is because of who it comes from. God has, it comes from God. Now, I have been accused of the following, and I know some of you also have. Man, you're worshiping the Bible. You're worshiping the Bible. You need to worship God, not the Bible. I've heard this from faith, from, I've heard this from other pastors. No, I'm sorry, I'm not worshiping the Bible. Nothing could be further from the truth. I am simply recognizing the authority of God through his written word. Recognizing the authority of God's word is to recognize the authority of God. So no, I am not trying to worship a book. I'm trying to worship the living God who speaks supernaturally in and through the book that he's given us. And so, yes, the Bible is my highest authority. This has implications for apologetics, by the way. I don't want to get off on rabbit trails because I can be there forever on this issue. But sometimes you're debating with someone, well, I don't believe the Bible. And so what do we do? Well, let me make historical arguments. Let me make scientific arguments. No, if the Bible is the highest authority, well, I don't believe the Bible. I know that's what the Bible says you'd say. So awesome. We agree. You know, Vodi Bakum once said, if you got, if two men were getting into a sword fight and one man said, I don't believe in swords. He said, would you get into a debate and try to prove metallurgy? He goes, no, you cut him. Guess what? He believes in swords. So we don't give up the authority of God's word. Even when we're trying to witness the unbeliever, we continue to proclaim the word of God because God must supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, open the eyes and the ears of the hearts of the lost person to accept that the word of God is truth. No historical, scientific, philosophical argumentation can do that. The Bible is the highest authority. Therefore, it has the final say. And lastly, it's necessary. Do you realize that the God did not preserve his word for us perfectly, inerrantly, infallibly? We would have no hope of salvation. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We hear in Romans 10. John 17, 17, that I've quoted multiple times, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. If the word is necessary for our sanctification, our salvation, our sanctification. Matthew 4, 4, in Matthew chapter 4, especially verse 4, Jesus is battling with Satan in the wilderness. How does he combat? How is he sustained? In the midst of the spiritual attack, well, Matthew 4, 4, he says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're sustained by the word of God. It saves, it sanctifies, it sustains. It is absolutely necessary. You will not have a relationship with God apart from his word. It's impossible. That's why it's, it's as, as narrow-minded as this can sound, if you do not have a relationship with God's word, you do not have a relationship with God. You may be a fan, but you're not a follower. The word of God helps us grow in the knowledge of God. John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. 
Well, how do we do that? By the word. And so that was some basic systematic theology. The next part goes pretty quick, but had to lay that foundation. But I want you to see, church, that the scripture is important. It's a powerful force in our life. God is omnipotent. He is the all-powerful God. And this all-powerful God, who is truth, who is perfect, has spoken and is speaking. All that is true of those inerrancy, infallibility, sufficiency, clarity, authority, the necessity. Do you realize how, I want you to just think on how all that connects back to the very character of God. The word reflects God's character. Which is why he says here in 2 Timothy 3. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. He says all scripture also, all 66 books are necessary. In the immediate context, it would have been the Old Testament that Paul's referencing and perhaps a couple of New Testament letters in circulation. But by extension, it includes all of the Bible. But Paul does have the Old Testament in mind. Notice he's saying the Old Testament does all these things. Somehow we're New Testament Christians. We love our New Testament. But everything that Paul's promising here flows from that other 75% of your Bible that you seldom touch. And I seldom touch. Which is crazy because that would mean if I don't understand the first 75%, how do I properly understand the last 25%? And so all scripture, I'm just going to say, I encourage you guys become more familiar with the Old Testament. As your knowledge and comfort with the Old Testament increases, your appreciation of the New Testament will increase as well. You will better understand Christ, the gospel, and the glory of God in the New Testament if you spend time in the Old. So with that said, he says, all scripture is profitable for teaching. Profitable. It's useful. It's beneficial. It's advantageous. For what? For teaching, for instruction, for the imparting of knowledge. This is the primary work of God's word in the life of the church. The primary work of the word of God in the church is to instruct the people of God in the knowledge of God. When the word of God is being taught rightly in a church, the church grows, the church is in their knowledge, they're sanctified, and they're protected against false teachers and false teachings. Paul's writing to young Timothy, he's pastoring Ephesus here, and they were dealing with some heresies and apostasy going on there. So Paul is telling him, take them back to the Bible, take them back to the word. Rightly divide the word of truth. And guess what? Your church will be able to spot what's not of God and throw it away. It's the same for us. False teaching and false teachers abound. If you and I are going to be faithful and truly stand for truth, then we have to abide in the word of God. 
If we're not abiding in God's word, we will fall captive to false teachings. Stop chasing after the world. Stop stop being so enamored with the newest fads and teachings the world has. Rather, chain yourself to the Bible and allow that to be what instructs you. You realize, and I'm on my phone quite a bit, so I'm not saying this as somebody who isn't, but you realize all that time we're on our phones, our iPads, our TVs, our computers, we're being discipled by the world. It's messaging is feeding into you. And that is not, depending on what you're taking in, especially, that's not profitable. And so we need to be taking in the word of God because, and let it teach us, instruct us. We need to abide, remain in. We talked about abiding the life-giving nutrients of the, of the vine into the branches. As we abide into the word of God, the very blood of the scriptures flows into us. I'm not saying you can't learn anything outside of the Bible. I'm simply saying anything you learn outside of the Bible must be done in submission to the Bible. Science, history, psychology, sociology, counseling, politics. Yeah, learn about them for sure. But all that you learn, make sure you measure it against the Bible and that it has the final word because it is the authority. He says profitable for teaching. So that again tells us There is no abiding in the word without being taught the word. And so we need to pick up our scriptures. We need to dig in. We need to come to church on Sunday morning and Sunday nights. We need to take notes while we're here. We need to review them. We need to be attending Bible studies. We need to be giving ourselves every opportunity to be fed by the word of God. If there's anything within the life of the believer and the life of the believer in a local church that is giving you the word of God and you somehow think that's optional, what you're really saying in your arrogance is, I don't need to be taught anymore today. It's an arrogant posture. It is profitable for teaching. You you and I are being so inundated with the garbage of the world that to, by choice, I know there's circumstances, but by choice to forego the teaching of the word is to say, I don't need that much Jesus in my life today. To pick worldly pleasures over an opportunity taught the word of God is to say, it's okay, Lord, I got this on my own right now. It's to pick you over him. Paul is telling us the word of God is profitable to teach. So do not make the foolish choice to live in biblical illiteracy. Because if you live in biblical illiteracy, you become easy prey for sin and Satan. He says for reproof, next, that's a word we don't use often anymore because we live in a don't offend me, feel good society. But this is a biblical word to reprove. It means to convict someone of sinful behavior, action, or beliefs. To reprove somebody is to try to make them aware of their sin. And Paul is saying here that the word of God is profitable to do that very thing. That the word of God will confront and convict his people.
That's probably why most people avoid the scriptures because they don't want God through his word to confront and convict them of their sin. But that's actually one of the beautiful things. It's actually really gracious of God to confront and convict you of your sin through his word. This is all the more reason we need to be abiding so that the sin in my life can be exposed and gotten rid of. This is why Jesus says to abide in his word. Either you will abide in the word or you will abide in the world. There is no middle ground. Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Affliction. This is the word we looked at when we talked about abiding in praise. Pruning. Those are good things that God does when we abide in his word. He reproves us. And evidence that you and I are abiding in the word of God is that you are being constantly reproved by the word of God. If your relationship with God's word is one of always feel good encouragement, either A, you're only reading feel good verses, or B, you're not being honest with yourself about what God's word is saying. There is enough sin in my life that if I, I can, there should not be any book of the Bible I can read, any chapter that doesn't cause me to see just how glorious God is and how far off I am. And that I need, I need reproving. Paul says it's profitable for reproof. As a side note, Notice he's saying that the God-breathed word is what reproves, which means it's not my job or your job to reprove anyone. Rather, we are simply to bring the word of God to bear on a person's life so that God can reprove them through it. We bring the word of God to bear on a person's life and we let God do the reproving through his word. He says, profitable correction. Correction means to, to fix something, to set it right, to put it in alignment. Every single one of us needs correction. Young Timothy's leading a church with false teaching. How's, how's Timothy going to deal with what's going on? How do I fix the situation? Well, let me just ignore it because I don't want to lose church members. No, that's not how you correct that problem. Well, you know what? Let me send that guy because he's a lot more courageous than I am. And I don't want to deal with it. No, nope. don't be cowardly in your, in your correction. Hold up the word of God and says, thus says the Lord. And allow the word of God to speak directly and perfectly to what needs to be fixed. Again. This is the chief mark of a disciple. As we abide in the word of God, the word of God consistently corrects us. As you read your Bible and study your Bible personally, it corrects you. As you sit under the preaching of the word, it corrects you. As brothers and sisters minister to one another, it corrects you. The Bible must consistently be correcting you. But that only happens if you're abiding. And so often we think about correction, like, oh, I did something wrong. It is a grace because the more the word of God corrects you, the more rightly you can see God, the more rightly you can see God, the more rightly you can enjoy him. 
So if you don't want the word of God to correct you, ask yourself, do you even really want to enjoy God as he really is? And lastly, he says training in righteousness. Training just means a system of discipline. The word itself in the original language is connected to the raising of children, which is fitting because it means the word of God is profitable to grow us up, to educate us, and to, to grow us up to educate us in righteousness. This isn't talking about justifying righteousness. This is talking about godly living, about holiness. And so we abide in God's word. And as we abide in God's word, God trains us into holiness. As we abide in God's word, he trains us into Christ-conforming, Christ-exalting, Christ-advancing living. And the fact that it's training lets us know it doesn't come naturally. You do not become righteous by osmosis. You don't become righteous by hanging out with righteous people. You become righteous by submitting yourself to the word of God and abiding in it. Abiding in the word of God means you have to put in the spiritual sweat. You got to hit the, the spiritual gym. A five-minute devotion every other day will not have you trained in righteousness. An unfocused time of Bible reading will not have you trained in righteousness. Going to the word of God, which simply in the, in the moments you feel sad and lonely or depressed, will not train you in righteousness. Every single day, we must be abiding in the word of God and asking God to train us. You don't go to the gym only when you feel like it. You go to the gym by a disciplined uh, structure, system in place, plan. If you're not being trained in righteousness, then you're going to experience spiritual atrophy. God's given us his word. It saves, it sanctifies, it sustains, and we are to abide. The Holy Spirit lives in us and brings into understanding all that Jesus taught. So are you abiding in the word of God? Are you ordering the events of your life so that the word of God is, is governing it all. Abiding in God's word doesn't mean just Bible study. Abiding in God's word means you carry the word of God in your heart everywhere you go. I have stored your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Does God's word abide in you? And do you abide in his word? Because the word of God is God's chief tool to make you more like Jesus. I know people though, you know what? Didn't get into my Bible today, but I listened to a bunch of like really nice Christian songs. That's great. I'm not saying not to, but Christian songs are not, doesn't mean you're abiding in the word of God, especially if it's some of the more contemporary stuff. You need, Christian songs aren't inspired. They're not inerrant. They're not infallible. They're not sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary. Only the word of God is. And so we must abide in it because as we abide in it, God will teach you.
reprove you, correct you, and train you. And that order matters. As you're being taught, you're being reproved. As you're being reproved, you're corrected. And as you're corrected, you're being trained. That's the pattern. We must abide. This is how we abide in Christ, is by abiding in his word. In the book of Colossians, we saw that it was talked about as the word of Christ. In the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus is called the word. And as we do so, it tells us we'll be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. You don't need leadership courses. You don't need the newest self-help books. You don't need to listen to all the TED Talks in order to be complete. You just need to abide in God's word. It's more than enough. You don't need to add to it. You need to only abide in it. And one of the beautiful things is when you do, you are equipped by God himself. He's equipping you. He makes you complete. He makes you thoroughly equipped for every good work, meaning everything he calls you to in this life. You're unsure about how to handle a situation. You're unsure on what to do. Abide in the word of God and the word God will guide you on how to handle it. Don't know how to handle a situation at work? Abide in the word. Don't know how to handle a marriage situation? Abide in the word. Don't know how to handle a situation with children or family members? Abide in the word. Don't know how to handle something going on within your own, inside of yourself? Run to the word and abide in it. And as you abide in the word of God, the spirit of God will guide, teach, reprove, correct, and train. So it's a tragedy if there's believers out there who are not abiding. No believer should be labeled as unprepared, unequipped, and incomplete. We've given us, he's given us all we need. We need to not turn to the experts and the gurus, the social media influencers. We need to stop bowing the knee to pragmatism. And we need to abide in the word of God as Jesus commands. Professor Dustin Benge says this, quote, either scripture will be the lens through which you view the world or the world will be the lens through which you view scripture. Ultimately, one or the other will be your authority, end quote. It's my prayer that we would be a church that abides in the word of God. That's why our church is called the Apostle Bible Church because we want everyone to know this is what we're about. We're about the word of God because we're about God. So let me close with a quote from J.C. Ryle. And it captures my prayer for each one of us. Quote, let us read the Bible regularly, daily, and with fervent prayer and become familiar with its contents. Let us receive nothing, believe nothing, follow nothing which is not in the Bible, nor can be proved by the Bible. Let our rule of faith, our touchstone of all teaching, be the written word of God, end quote. Let's pray. Father God, we seek to be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, faithful men and women who follow Jesus. And we know 
that in order to do so, we must abide in the word. Jesus, you have told us so much in the word. You've told us that if we abide in the word, we tr prove to truly be your disciples. And so this is our prayer. We know that on our own strength, we cannot do this. On our own strength, we will not abide from the word, but we will drift from the word. And so we plead with you now, God, that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us. Holy Spirit, you live in us. Grab hold of our hearts and chain us to the word of God. May we abide in the word. May the word abide in us. May, be, may we be men and women, as it was said of Bunyan, that if you cut us, we bleed scripture. Help us, you, you tell us to worship you in spirit and truth. In order to worship you in truth, we need the word of truth. So help us be men and women who abide in Christ by abiding in the word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.